Well, hello. How are we doing, everybody? Good. Thank you for that woo. That was an enthusiastic woo. I appreciate that. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. That's an even more enthusiastic woo. I like it. Well, yeah, I hope you guys are doing well. If I have not met you, uh, my name is Kyle, and I'm the college pastor here at ABC. Uh, so glad to have you guys tonight. Uh, meatball subs, pretty good. Are we a fan? Okay. There's a woo for that. Well, cool. Well, if you didn't like it, it was free. Okay. So, <laughs> but uh, hey, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in a few different places, but you can go and turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 9, 23 through 25 for just a minute, and we'll be in a few different places after that. While you're turning there, uh, we are in a series that we've been calling uh, True Faults, Lies About God That Sound Like the Truth. And so if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been walking through some different lies that we sometimes hear in the world, sometimes we even hear them in the church that maybe sound true, like they have some spiritual truth to them, uh, but really they're not true. I had a friend the other day say, hey, you guys are doing that uh, Two Truths and a Lie series, right? I'm like, no, not Two Truths and a Lie. It's close enough though, okay? Um, but past few weeks, we've been walking through a couple of different lies, like God wants, just wants you to be happy. You know, uh, you only live once. Uh, last week, we talked about your feelings are a reality and how that's a lie. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the lie uh, that your life is what you make it. That your life is what you make it. That's tonight's lie. But first off, I want to uh, look at Luke 9 to kind of give us some context in scripture for this. This will not be an expositional sermon on Luke 9, but I think it's going to give us some helpful uh, context and thoughts from Jesus himself before we get into this tonight. So if you'll read with me, uh, we're going to be in Luke 9, 23 through 25, and then we'll get into this message, okay? This will all be on the screen as well. It says this, and he, he being Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we come to you tonight realizing the temptation that all of us face to make this world ultimate, to make this world the thing that we uh, center our whole lives around, uh, to make this world the thing that we um, invest all of our time and energy and focus in, Lord, and ultimately we neglect eternity, that we even unknowingly maybe forfeit ourselves or our soul uh, for the treasures of this world. So I pray tonight, Father, as we walk through a, a challenging thought, a, a challenging idea of really just self-sufficiency, of pride, Lord, of um, all the things that make us want to worship ourselves, I pray that we would um, have open ears to your spirit tonight to speak to us, to challenge us, um, to examine even in our own hearts the way that we may be given to this lie and the ways we may need to repent, to turn and change and surrender things to you tonight. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so with this um, lie, there's a lot of interesting things, interesting things you could talk about, but you know, I've been on this like social media kick lately of being really critical of social media in my own life, but there's one social media I have trouble kicking, and it's YouTube. Like I have the YouTube app on my phone, and I'm just kind of hooked on random videos. Kevin James has an amazing YouTube channel these days. It's hilarious if you haven't seen it. But anyway, so, but with YouTube comes ads, right? 
And I'm always fascinated by the ads because they, you know, they're personalized to you. So I always am reflecting on what do they think about me when they show me ads. Like the other day I had a Muslim, like a, a mosque ad pop up. I'm like, okay, either something's got crisscrossed or you're trying to evangelize to me. I don't know. Um, but a lot of my ads on YouTube are these ads you, you may have seen. It's this guy who's like, are you working nine to five? Just wasting your life away. But you could be like me. Look at my Lamborghini. Look at these models. Look at all this money that I have. All you got to do is take my course online and then you'll be a millionaire in three months. Anybody else getting those ads? Am I the only one? Okay, I'm also older and in a different season of life than you. But they're like preying on maybe my... 30, my like 33 year old self, you know, but that's like my ads all the time are these guys pitching me these things, you know, so much that it's become a meme to other people. I get ads now making fun of those ads, <laughs> you know, so, but I get this ad all the time, or these ads all the time trying to sell me on the idea of becoming rich and famous in easy ways, things like that, you know, and honestly, if you want to talk about the lie of your life being what you make it, that's really what they're pitching you. Hey, your life is what you make it. Just invest this time in this thing. You'll become rich. You'll become famous, all this kind of stuff. You know, but most people, myself included, see that and think, okay, this has got to be like in some way fake because if it was that easy, everybody would do it. You know, there's got to be some manipulation involved here. So I don't trust it. But that idea, I think, exposes some different issues in our culture. I was doing some research and a recent Harris Poll survey said this. They interviewed kids these days and asked them what they wanted to be when they grew up. And today's kids would rather be a professional YouTuber when they grow up than a teacher or an astronaut. These days, more kids say they would rather be a YouTuber professionally than a teacher or an astronaut, uh, which just makes me sad in some ways. Not that YouTube isn't a way to make a living, I guess. It's probably not a great way to bank on a sustainable living, but that should tell us a lot about our culture in the way that we value things and what even kids see us as older people valuing. valuing. And even on Instagram these days, there's a trend now to where you have like fake sponsorships. You know, you get people online, they get sponsored by different places and they kind of flaunt the sponsorship. But these days, there's even people who will pretend they're sponsored by like a clothing line or like a fancy purse company or a hotel line or whatever. They'll go, they'll spend all this money on a hotel or a purse, but they'll pretend like they got sponsored just for like the attention to seem like they're an important person, even though they spent two grand on this hotel when really they're trying to make it seem like they got, you know, chosen to promote it and all this kind of stuff. So even this like, you know, fake version of being successful is such a big thing these days. And I think more and more in our culture, we're being sold this lie that your life is what you make it. And if your life isn't all about money and success and glamour, then your life isn't very good. And how often do you see an ad, like I said, you know, essentially saying, hey, I made $3 million in the past few months. Like, what are you doing with your life? And how many, how many articles say, well, what are you doing with your life, you know, versus this person over here? And really what that is, is we're being shamed into thinking that doing something with our life means that we're going to be rich and successful and honestly get a lot of attention for whatever we're doing, even if it ends up being fake, even if it's a fake sponsorship. So we're going to dive into this lie a little bit tonight of your life is what you make it by really looking at three core elements of this. And they all are alliterated because I wanted to just, you know, be a Baptist pastor tonight. Okay, so they're all alliterated with this. But they're, it's the sin of self-sufficiency. The, what did I even say the second one? The, the evil, is it evil? Error, wow, thank you. I didn't have that on my page here. The error of entitlement and then the solution to our selfishness. We're really looking at three core elements here. Self-sufficiency, entitlement, and selfishness that all get boiled into this line. And if you don't feel like you fall into this issue yet, I think you'll find we all do more than you think. Just give me a minute to get there, okay? So let's first talk about self-sufficiency, all right? Just consider for a moment, we won't read the story, but consider the Genesis 3 story we've been talking about multiple weeks so far with the temptation of Adam and Eve. 
You know, we know Satan tempts Eve to eat the fruit on the tree. Eve says not to eat it because God said so. And God said, hey, if you eat the fruit, you're gonna die. And that's her motivation there. But what does Satan say after that? Well, in Genesis 3, he says this, starting in verse four. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And really the core of what Satan says um, here, and this is something Jared said Sunday morning, is that the core of Satan's lie to, Eve, a lie to Eve is this, is that God is holding out on you. That God is holding out on you. That he has this thing, you know, this kind of power, this authority, this blessing that he's holding out um, from you. So therefore, if you really want to make it in this world, you got to get what you can by your own hand. You have to go around even what God has said. Satan was lying and saying, you know what? The world that God made isn't as good as he says it is. So you're going to have to make it good yourself. That's the idea. And uh, author Jared Wilson, I love the way he paraphrased this lie. So I'm going to read you the paraphrase he said here. It's going to be on the screen. But he paraphrased the lie this way. He said, all that God has given you is not quite enough, is it? There's more to have, you know. He wants to keep you from what only he has. What a stingy God. What a miser. He doesn't want you to share his deity with you. Well, you can show him. He's given you a will, so why not use it? The fruit is right here for the taking. Why would he put it right here if he didn't want you to have it? There's no holding you back now. Let's see you guys, let's see what you guys can make of the world without these terrible restraints. And that's just, I think, a really interesting paraphrase of the lie that he gave them. But here's the thing, because of sin, we all end up with a irrational distrust of God and a rational worship of ourselves, or I should say a rationalized worship of ourselves. That we have an irrational distrust of God and we have a rationalized worship of ourselves. That we believe this lie that you'll be like God, you know, when we think that God has held out on us and it's up to us then to make, you know, to become our own God and to make our own meaning in life. You know, we don't trust that following God's guidance in life is going to be best for us. So instead, we trust ourselves to know that we know what's best for us in life. And that leads us to consider many things of the world to be far more worth our time and our energy than the things of God. And I love yet again how Jared Wilson says it, commenting on this. He says, Satan wants you to hold your soul cheap and the stuff of this world precious. He wants you to hold your soul cheap and the stuff of this world precious. But here's the thing. I know that most people in this room probably aren't like idolizing, you know, celebrities and wanting to become a millionaire probably in the room. You know, but many of us in this room, I think, struggle with this lie, maybe just in a little bit different way, that we struggle with it in the way that we idolize our achievements in life. We idolize our achievements. And that's another version of this lie because in doing that, we're ultimately worshiping ourselves in our own ability to make life good for ourselves. And I, I struggle with this because, you know, if you're an Enneagram person, I'm an Enneagram type three. Any threes in the room who know there are three? Okay, do you even know what the Enneagram is? Okay, cool. Some of y'all do. All right. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah. So I'm a three, which means that I'm an achiever, which means that I care a lot about people thinking I'm successful. Even if I'm not really, I, I want people to think I'm successful is what the type three trait is, you know. And I've seen that in my own life uh, in many ways because, I mean, I think it's maybe one of the reasons God called me out of engineering and into ministry, you know, to kind of get me out of that in some ways. Uh, but I struggle with this a lot even in school because I was an engineering major and I struggled a lot in finding my identity in my grades. 
that I was that weird person that if I got a B on the test, I just really hated it. It stressed me out. I spent time ruminating over what I could have done better or why'd I make a B, why couldn't I make an A. I was that weird person, y'all. But I found my, I struggled to find my identity in my achievements and in my grades. And maybe you struggle the same way in, in a variety of things. But you know, maybe for you, it's less academic. Maybe academic achievement isn't your thing. Let me give you a couple of diagnostic questions to help you maybe think how you're buying into this lie of self-sufficiency, okay? Here's some diagnostic questions. Uh, maybe one, how much of your social media is you putting forward an image of yourself that's not really true, that you're trying to prop up yourself to look better than you really are? That could be some self-sufficiency. You know, how often when you're driving do you get frustrated that everyone else is going too fast or going too slow? That you're like the divine standard for what speed should be driven on the road. That may be some self-sufficiency. Do, you, do, you ever accuse, sorry, do people ever accuse you of being too defensive or being too sensitive when you're criticized? You know, how much time do you spend thinking about how other people view you? Is that something that goes through your mind a lot that you worry about? You know, or do you care so little about what people think about you that you can be harsh with people. You can be critical of them. You, do you find yourself constantly being critical of your friends without being as critical to yourself, that you hold other people to a higher standard than you hold yourself? And do you get upset sometimes when people don't give you the attention you think you deserve? Like you, you do something, you, get a, you accomplish something, you don't get the praise you think you deserve, therefore you get frustrated, even if you don't express it. Okay, I probably hit everyone in the room in some way in that. I hit myself a lot of times in that. But if you find yourself answering yes to any of those questions, then there's probably some self-sufficiency in your heart that we need to work through, myself included. But all those things are ways we can see what sin does to us. That sin has this way of making us all prideful, making us selfish, making us self-reliant to where we think we always know best and the other people don't. That maybe even we know better than God sometimes. We wouldn't say it that way, but maybe we believe it. And the danger is this, there's tons of dangers to that, but one of the ultimate dangers of it is that being self-sufficient also makes grace look too good to be true. It makes grace too good to be true to where sometimes we have a hard time even accepting God's grace in our own lives. You know, we're like me watching the YouTube millionaire ad. I think, no, this, there has to be a catch in this grace thing, right? So there's no way I'm going to accept it. I can't believe it. I can't trust it because it's just too good to be true. I've got to prove myself in some kind of way. I'm, I'm, I've got to be self-made in some kind of way. And in doing that, we reject the free gift of grace that God has given us, that we reject his grace, which is then eternally dangerous. Because ultimately, when we say and we believe this lie of your life is what you make it, really what we're doing ultimately is we're committing treason against God, that we're rejecting his authority in our lives, we're trying to put ourselves in his authority, in his place. And what's the punishment for treason? It's death, right? It's death. So that's the first thing we see is the sin of self-sufficiency. But let's look at the second part, the error of entitlement. I was too alliterated in this, y'all. I got too into this today. Okay, so the error of entitlement. So think of the second part. Because the lie that your life is what you make, it also leads us to being entitled. And I'm not talking about the way that like old people say this generation is lazy and entitled and all that kind of stuff. I really think every generation always says that of the people below them. I think it's more of a just cultural thing. Because I think you as a generation are anything but lazy and entitled. You're, you're passionate, you're driven, you're thoughtful. But sin makes every generation, every person in some way susceptible to feeling entitled. It's part of what sin does to us. And entitlement is a lot more than what we normally think of. Usually when we think entitlement, we think we feel like we deserve a free handout, like a free pass in some kind of way. But entitlement can lead us to all kinds of other things. I'll give you a couple of examples. 
Entitlement can lead us to cheat a little bit on that assignment, you know, because we're so busy or because the teacher is a bad teacher, therefore it's justified for me to cheat a little bit, right? Because he's a bad professor. You know, entitlement leads us to justify looking at porn each night because we're so stressed or we, we can't fight off these lustful feelings. You know, entitlement leads us to slack off at work because our boss is a jerk, therefore he didn't, he didn't deserve my 100% effort. Entitlement even leads us to rationalize maybe even eating crappy meals all the time because we feel like we deserve it after a long day, right? That hits me hard. I love some Wendy sometimes when I probably don't need to eat it. Um, and those all sound like small things, but here's the thing. They can add up to a big deal if we always have this mentality that we are owed something, that we deserve something. And now there are plenty of ways that human beings are entitled from other human beings to receive things. We call those basic human rights, right? You know, things like right to life, right to freedom, free of speech, you know, right to work, provide for yourself. All those things are basic human rights that we should protect that people are entitled to. That's important to know. You could even say that the Bible teaches that lost people are even entitled to hear the gospel. Let's consider how Paul says it in Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul says that he is under obligation to both Jews and Greeks to preach the gospel to them. Uh, the way David Platt says it, it's on the screen, but David Platt says that every saved person on this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person on this side of hell. But also, you know, while we're not entitled to it, there is this doctrine in theology that we call the doctrine of common grace. You may have heard of that before. And common grace is this thing, it's, the, it's where the grace and kindness of God leads him to give us good things that we don't deserve, even non-believers, that God is gracious and kind to everyone even when we don't deserve it. So God shows common grace to people by allowing them to enjoy things like just life, nature, you know, the, the flourishing of human society, a good meal, art, culture, even coffee is an aspect of common grace that God shows to everybody. You want to be a believer to experience the goodness of coffee, amen? So like, you know, all these things are gifts of common grace, but we're not entitled to those things. We don't deserve those things but he gives them to us. But the kind of entitlement we're talking about, the kind that says your life is what you make it, is an entitlement that is dangerous, and it's dangerous to our souls. It's dangerous to our souls, because it's just like Eve with the fruit, saying, yeah, I deserve this. You know, I deserve to be more like God, because God's holding out on me. He's keeping these good things from me. He's keeping me from the good life, but I deserve this. So I'm gonna go around him. I'm gonna live life my own way. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we want to talk about entitlement, what we deserve, the harsh truth is that all we truly deserve is the wrath of God, that all we truly deserve is hell, that we all have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 would tell us, right, that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death, that we, all we deserve is death, is hell, that we've all rejected God's design. We've all said we'd make a better God than God ultimately. That's what sin leads us to. We've all looked at this world and we've all said it looks better than the things of God. We've all said we'd rather live for this world than for him. And like I said, that's treason against God. And the punishment for treason is death. And that's all that we're really owed, if we want to be honest about it. Not that God doesn't show us grace through common grace, but that's all we're really owed is the wrath of God. So then the third thing we need to talk about tonight then is the solution then to our selfishness. So what's the solution then? to our selfishness. Well, you could say the easy answer is the, the Christianese or the gospel, right? It's always the solution, and that's totally true. But, and we'll talk about that more in a second. You know, but how does the gospel lead us 
to respond to this lie that your life is what you make it. How does it lead us to respond? Well, I'd say that the gospel leads us to respond with the biblical virtue of meekness. Not a word that we use a lot, all right? But the biblical virtue of meekness, okay? I'm going to define that. Because meekness isn't a word that we really use a lot these days. It's not one that we can even define very well. But you, you may have heard before that meekness can be defined as power under control. And that's not a bad definition, necessarily. But I would say, um, I heard this recently. Here's a definition I like better. It's on the screen. That meekness is weaponized weakness. It's weaponized weakness. What do I mean by that? Well, meekness is, here's the thing. It's when we own our own weaknesses and we see it as a way to live out Luke 9. We see it as a way to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. And meekness is being honest and realistic about our own inadequacies in life. It's being honest about our own sinful hearts. And it leads us, or it should lead us, if we're being biblically meek, it should lead us to find our strength in Christ then, find our identity in Christ, not in ourselves. That meekness is having a realistic picture of who we are, our own inadequacies, but then looking to our strength in Jesus. Now, in a world that preaches, you know, about us making ourselves into our own little gods, you know, where we're the, we're the captain of our own ship, the captain of our own vessel, you know, we're, we're self-made people. In a culture that teaches that, you know, meekness is a weapon that we can use to fight against this lie, this lie that your life is what you make it. Uh, consider, the role, uh, consider the role the apostle Paul said meekness played in his life. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but 2 Corinthians 12 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul's talking about some of his experiences. He's had these higher revelations. He's kind of like being caught up into the third heaven stuff. It's really trippy. It's hard to know exactly what he's talking about. But he's had this experience with God, and he's trying to fight getting arrogant because of that. And he talks about this experience that he has. Here in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7, he says this. He says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Some of y'all think it's SpongeBob from that meme. Okay, it's not SpongeBob, all right? But he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, and hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul got meekness. He understood what meekness is. You notice how he says this thorn was given to him to keep him from being conceited, to keep him from being arrogant, to think him from thinking that his life is what he made it. But instead, he learned to boast in his weaknesses, to, to brag on God even in the midst of his weaknesses, because he realized that as he recognized his own inability, it allowed God to show his ability in his life. And that's the same thing for us. As we recognize our own inability, it opens the door for God to show his eternal ability in our lives, to show his power in our lives. So Paul weaponized his weakness as a spiritual tool for spiritual warfare. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, we, we hate ourselves or we, we live, you know, passive, cowardly lives. It doesn't mean that we're like the monks in Monty Python and we beat ourselves all the time. You know, it's, it's not how we live, okay? But instead, it means that Christian meekness allows to be fearlessly humble as we stand secure in Christ. We can be fearlessly humble as we stand secure in him because we find our security not in ourselves, not in our achievements, not even in what's been given to us, but instead we find it simply in who Christ is and what he's done for us. Because here's the thing, the meek are far more concerned about what God thinks about them than what people think about them. The meek are way more concerned about what God says about them than what other people say about them. You know, it's only that truth that means that the meek could do these things like the Sermon on the Mount describes. You ever read the Sermon on the Mount before, Matthew 5 through 7? We preached through it a couple of years ago. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the meek are people who turn the other cheek instead of seeking retaliation, that they learn to forgive. They don't try to get what's theirs and get even, but instead they turn the other cheek. That's the thing that only the meek could do, who boast in their weakness. The meek are only the ones who could give someone their cloak after they demand your tunic from them. That has to be a thing of meekness. You know, the meek are the only ones who could go the second mile with someone when they force you to walk the first mile. Because someone who feels entitled, someone who feels self-made, self-sufficient would never do those kind of things because they involve self-sacrifice and they involve self-denial. They involve laying their life down for somebody else. It's only someone who's secure in Jesus, who's secure in Christ, who could ever do those kind of things because they're not trying to find the security, their identity in really how they're even treated, but they find it in Jesus. So if we just focus on what we deserve in life, we're going to be a slave to our own pride, and we're going to be ultimately a slave to our own self-esteem, to where we'll become far more manipulated than we ever thought. We think, well, I'm I'm self-made, I'm self-sufficient, I'm doing whatever I want to, but in the end, that very mentality, that attitude, becomes a hard, hard master to serve. We become a slave to that mentality, and we're way less free than we ever think because we're a slave to our own idea of freedom, if that makes sense. Because the devil wants us to feel self-reliant. The devil wants us to feel self-made. He wants us just to look out for ourselves. But if we're confident in who we are in Christ, then we can be set free from that burden of pride. We can be set free to be meek, to deny ourselves, to serve others, to find our identity in Jesus, which ultimately is so much better than ever trying to find my identity in my accomplishments. So much better. And as Jesus also said in the Beatitudes, he said that the meek will inherit the what? The earth. The meek will inherit the earth, as in the new heaven and the new earth in eternity. That the people who on earth seem like the ones who are maybe being trampled on, the ones being taken advantage of, the ones who are being persecuted, the ones that are laying down their lives for the needy, for the poor, for the oppressed, the ones that no one thinks, yeah, they're going to be the ones that inherit the earth. They're the ones that that inherit the earth. Because they're the ones who are setting the example of the selfless, sacrificial Savior who came to save us from our sins. They're setting the example of meekness. Because Jesus himself was called meek and mild, right? He was meek and mild. I think we sing a song about that at Christmas time. All right? But as we begin to wrap up, here's the thing. Culture's gonna tell us that all of our problems in life lie outside of us and the solution lies within us. That the problems are outside of us and the solution lies within us. You can call this Disney theology, all right? Disney theology tells us that if you just follow your heart, you know, just believe in yourself, you know, you can be and do whatever you want, right? You know, every Disney movie, I think at some point has a climax where the main character just kind of believes in themselves, they muster up strength, and they overcome their obstacles, right? Which, I mean, I love Disney movies, they're fun, but that theology is really dangerous in life if you begin to play it out, because if you, if you follow your heart, it's going to lead you 
nowhere but away from God, all right? Your heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah tells us, okay? So don't follow your heart, all right? Um, but the Bible would tell us that the truth is just the opposite of what culture would say. Culture says problems outside of us, solution inside of us, that we can overcome it with our own effort. But the Bible would tell us the opposite, that the ultimate problem in our life is inside of us, and the solution has to come from outside of us. The ultimate problem is inside of us, the solution has to come from outside, that we can't do anything on our own to rescue ourselves from the problem, which is ultimately our wicked hearts, that our hearts are distorted because of sin. Our hearts are broken, our minds are broken and darkened in sin, but Christ comes from outside of us, he comes to save us. He comes to illuminate our eyes and our mind, to see the things that he has done for us and to see the free gift of salvation and to respond to the gospel. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, you know, think about this story and how it goes. They sinned, God eventually calls out to them, right? Says, hey, Adam and Eve, where'd you go? What are you doing? And they eventually kind of come to him. They're kind of ashamed. But what do they do when they first come to God? Well, they realize they're naked, so what do they do? They, they sew or they kind of just put together garments made of fig leaves, right? They cover themselves. And that whole, that's a whole different conversation for many things. But there's something we can learn there, that Adam and Eve were seeking to come up with their own solution to their sin problem, Right? Sin enters the world, enters into their own hearts and minds. They immediately realize they're naked, they're ashamed. So they try to come up with their own solution to their sin problem, right? So they take fig leaves and they cover themselves. They try to find their own way out of the sin problem. It's the same thing that we do today, that many of us do today. But when God finally confronts them, right, he tells them that their sin can't be covered up so easily, right? So what does he do? He doesn't leave them naked. He loves them, so he covers them. But what does he cover them with? The skins of animals, it took me a long time. It was only a couple years ago I began to realize that those animal skins probably didn't just materialize out of thin air, right? God could have done that for sure, right? He can make whatever materialize. But what does that probably mean if, if he clothed them in the skin of animals? That something died, right? Something had to die to cover them in their sin. Long before we see animal sacrifices, long before we see the sacrifice of Christ, we have God covering up the sins of people by a sacrifice, by a sacrifice, and that means for us that to understand the depths of God's mercy, we have got to understand the depth of our sin. We'll never understand the depths of his mercy until we understand the depths of our sin. We have to understand that our sin is a lot more than just doing bad stuff. It's a lot more than bad actions. But the heart of sin is seeking to live a life independent of God. It's to seek a life away from God, just making up your own rules, defining yourself outside of him. The heart of sin is to think of ourselves as self-made, to think of ourselves as self-sufficient. It really appeals to our American individualism in many ways. But if the heart of sin is to think of ourselves as self-made, then the heart of salvation is then admitting that there's nothing good in us, that you are in complete need of the love and forgiveness of Christ that you could never deserve, but it's given to you freely as a gift of grace. That requires us to humble ourselves, to be meek, to own our sin, to own our inability and to accept the forgiveness of Christ. It's like the old hymn. It's one of my favorite hymns, actually, Rock of Ages. The third verse says this. It says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And that's the cry of every Christian. That's what it truly means to believe in Jesus, is to say, there's nothing that I bring. There's no amount of being self-made, being self-sufficient I could ever do to receive this gospel. It's simply to thy cross I cling. 
It's only in what Christ has done for me that I find my identity, I find my worth, I find my value, because otherwise I'm broken in sin. And so while your life is what you make it may be a lie, you know, there is a variation of that that is true. While your life is what you make it is a lie, there's a variation that's true, that this world is what we've made it. This world is what we've made it, and this world is broken because of our sin. It's what we've made. It's broken. It's cursed because of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God is in the process of making all things new. He's in the process of making all things new through Christ. That, that God made this world. He made it good. And he won't let sin have the last word. That he sent his son to live the perfect life in our place and die the death that we deserve on a cross for us. And while Adam and Eve sought to live forever and therefore died, Jesus died so that we can live forever that he has reversed the curse. And Christ's resurrection then is a foretaste of what's to come for every person that puts their faith in Jesus, every person that trusts in him, a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation to live in forever with him. Because the world is what we've made it. It's broken, it's jacked up because of sin, but God is making all things new in Jesus. So if you haven't, I wanna invite you tonight to do what we said in Luke 9 at the very beginning of this message, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you more about it, what it means to follow Christ, but don't leave here tonight without thinking through that and talking to someone if you, if you want to do that. Because here's the thing as we wrap up. Hell will be full of self-made men. Hell will be full of self-made men, but heaven will be full of people who realize their total weakness and their need for Jesus and surrender to him. So let's not buy into the lie that our life is what we make it, that we're just kind of making up our own life, that we're just making our own meaning, that we're self-made people, we don't need God. Let's not buy into that lie. Let's buy into the truth that we're broken in our sin, but we're deeply loved in Christ, and that we can find identity, purpose, and salvation in him, in him if we surrender to him. I'm going to pray for us, and then we have some questions. On your sheet there, you have three there. I'd um, love for you guys to take some time to discuss those at your table. Uh, we'll give you about 15 minutes to do that, and then I'll come back up and uh, dismiss us. But let me pray for you, and then you guys take some time to discuss, okay? Father, we come to you, and we admit, just like we read in, those, uh, in that hymn, that nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross we cling. There's nothing good in us. Lord, we live in a world that so easily wants us to define ourselves by our accomplishments, define ourselves by our own individuality and just our, our own pride. And while you have made us as individuals in, in your image, that you give, have given us personality, you've given us passions, you've given us um, just the gift of being uh, a human being created in your image, or in the end, we're all broken because of sin. That we've all, both in our nature when we're born and also in our actions and the way that we live, we've rejected you. That we have said that we'd rather do life apart from you, that we'd rather, we have a better plan for our life. And that then fleshes itself out in all kinds of sins, all kinds of symptoms of this ultimate sin of self-sufficiency, of seeking to worship ourselves over you. And I pray you would allow all of us tonight, Lord, Christian, non-Christian, everyone in this room, to be honest about our own hearts. And maybe to just ask the question, where are we giving in to this lie in some ways of your life is what you make it? Where are we giving in to being self-sufficient, being entitled, being prideful, being selfish? Because it's, it's ingrained in our culture so much and it's so hard for us sometimes to see it until it's staring at us in our face. 
So I pray you would use your spirit to open our hearts, open our eyes tonight to see it, show us ways we need to repent. I pray for any person in this room tonight, Lord, that maybe has been in church for a long time but began to realize that sin is a lot more than they thought it is and salvation is a lot bigger deal than they thought it was, that they really haven't repented and trusted in Christ. I pray tonight, Lord, that you would open their hearts to receive the gospel. I pray that you would transform and save people uh, tonight in this room. But for all of us, I pray that you would use your word, use this time, Lord, to transform us more into the image of Christ so we can be your witnesses more boldly in the world. pray that you would bless this discussion tonight. pray in Christ's name. Amen.